Welcome to Murder by Nature, where we discuss true crime, mystery, disappearances, and unsolved cases. I'm Jasmine Hernandez, your host today. Before I dive into the episode, I wanted to just show my appreciation and gratitude to everyone that's jumping on and listening. I went through my analytics today for one of the first times in the last few weeks, and I have eight countries. Eight And there's a range of different cities and all of these different places, but I just couldn't believe that so many people would want to listen to me talk about true crime. True crime is a really good topic that a lot of people like to listen to, but for people to actually be jumping on every Saturday and hearing me go through these different cases, it's the reason why I get up and continue to do it. So I know we're on episode nine now. And I just want to say thank you for everyone listening and continuing to listen to our podcast. I do have one person from Ireland. Um, They're in Dublin. And they've been listening since the very first episode. So thank you. Before we jump into our episode today, we're going to go over the references that are making this episode possible. We have the Illinois Time WTAX.com, HollandandCentral.com, The Midwest Crime Files, Gallensburg.com, PatriotLedger.com, TrueCrimeDiscussion.blogspot.com, Find a Grave for Ruth Ann, Find a Grave for Raymond Gee, and CombsNews.com. Our story begins in 2009. But we're going to jump back a few years to get an idea of who the Gee family was. Raymond Rick Gee was born in Decanter, Georgia on February 27, 1963. Ruth Ann Constant was born September 11, 1970 in Lincoln to Dean Edward and Frances Everhart Constant. This family would become a large blended family with Rick's three children from a previous relationship and Ruth Ann's children, Justina and Dylan Constant. Friends would say that the Gee family became the real-life Brady Bunch. They did everything together, from hiking and arts and crafts and just continuously building their family. In 1997, Rick and Ruth Ann got married in Biso, Illinois. Together, they welcomed their son Austin in 1998, a daughter named Jessica, and they would complete their family in 2006 with the birth of their baby daughter, Tabitha. Unfortunately, from what was found, Jessica suffered from a severe brain injury, resulting in profound disabilities. Jessica would eventually be placed in DCF's custody because she was going to be admitted into a long-term care facility as a state ward. With everything that was going on with Jessica, the family could not sustain taking care of her because of the medical treatment that she needed during that time. As the years passed, Nicole, Rick's eldest daughter, would marry a man named Christopher Harris, and they would welcome their daughter in 1990. The couple would develop a very toxic relationship From what friends and relatives said, they had an on-and-off-again marriage. They would get together, then they would divorce, and then they would get together, and then they would divorce. It was very toxic throughout the entire process. 
The pair would, though, eventually work through this and welcome a son into their marriage in 2009. So again, it was a very toxic situation within this relationship. And Nicole's family saw this. Her parents didn't really like the idea of what was going on. But at the same time, they had to respect that she was an adult. The parents, though, were now grandparents. And we're very excited to welcome their grandchildren into the family and continue to grow their branches out. They were a large family and they wanted to be a large family. It's something that Ruth Ann was really excited about is having that big family. And from what we can see is things did start to take a tragic turn. Friends and relatives said that uh, Ricky was starting to kind of distance himself. He was working with his stepdad at a construction company and has decided to open up his own construction company. So the stress and weight of doing that and having employees, it was just becoming a less happy cycle in the home. On September 21st, 2009, Rick's stepfather went to check on the family after Rick failed to show up for work that day. He didn't know what he was about to uncover with such a tragic case. Quickly after seeing the devastating scene, he called 911. Police and emergency medical services arrived at the Gee's home in Benson, Illinois, to find five family members dead in a gruesome attack that would haunt law enforcement for years to come. Rick, age 46, Ruth Ann, age 39, Justine, age 16, Dylan, age 4, and Austin, age 11, have all been beaten to death in their family home. Three-year-old Tabitha was found severely injured with a fractured skull and arm. She was airlifted to a hospital in Peora, Illinois, and placed under protective custody. With no suspects and no motive, police had no idea what they walked into. Nicole, leaving work, drives by her parents' house to see the scene unfolding. Nicole lived directly down the street from her parents, and when she was on her way home, she saw all of this police activity. When she approaches the house, the officers quickly tell her what happened. They also let her know that her younger sister was sent to the hospital, and she was in critical condition. Nicole rushes to the hospital to be with her sister, uncertain if she'll be okay. Police quickly interview Nicole, though. She was the only family member not harmed and was not in the area at the time of the attacks. Nicole was in shock. She, re- she remembers telling police, you really think I would do this? Do you see the scene? You think this is something I can do to my family? As the days continued, police urged their community to lock their doors and be alert to their surroundings. Benson, Illinois is a small town. They have about 430 people and only 117 families in the area. This was a town where everyone knew everyone, and after such a brutal attack, the community was unsure of who they needed to trust and who they couldn't. As police looked into suspects, they had to narrow down who the family was and who would want to hurt them. Rick owned his own construction company. Ruth Ann was a stay-at-home mother. The family had no known enemies in the town or the surrounding towns, and their kids were pretty normal. Justina was a typical 16-year-old, starting high school, and she began dating boys. 
She wasn't into drugs. She wasn't into anything like that. She was a normal high school kid. Austin was a typical 11-year-old who loved sports. Dylan was a wrestler for his middle school team, but there was some suspicion on Dylan as he became a little frustrated at times. Friends recalled that Dylan would stay in his room and play video games most of the day and have very little interaction with the family. Besides, some children become obsessed with games, but there was no real motive that he would kill his family, and he was amongst the five that were killed. Police started to interview neighbors to see if anyone had seen anything the night of the murder or anyone in the area that shouldn't have been there. One neighbor recalled seeing a pickup truck with huge exhaust pipes coming out the back end. Around 12 a.m., they were driving down the street. He remembers this as it was strange to him for a truck like that to belong to no one in the community to be riding around the streets that late at night. The police quickly followed up on this lead and the many others that flooded into the tip lines from all around the world. Unfortunately, there was no truck with big exhaust pipes like that in a 200-mile radius that the police could locate. The police also did let people know that these exhaust pipes could have been filed down by now, or they could have cut them out. There was a lot of different things that could have done, so they wanted to make sure that the description of the truck was what they focused on. On September 28, 2009, the Gee family was laid to rest. Relatives spoke at the funeral service and remembered the family as warm and welcoming. They said Rick Gee was well-mannered, he had a big heart, and he was someone that the community could rely on. Nearly 500 people gathered to remember the family at a funeral service in Mount Pelosca. I do want to add in here from what I was reading about the family and who they were is they were kind of hippies. Ricky did smoke pot. He always had pot, and people knew that he would a- was able to give that out. They did have an open marriage, so they were able to see and sleep with other people. They just lived a very free-spirited life in that sense. I just wanted to kind of touch base in that. As police were searching for the murderer, they had an officer watching over Tabitha. Tabitha was still in critical condition. She was in the hospital, but she was under protective custody, which means that they had a senior detective sitting in the front of her door. And the reason they did this is because Tabitha was only three. She's not going to give them much information or remember anything at all. So officers will put a like a senior detective or a senior field officer at the door to listen to the conversations that the families are having to see if they can gather any information. Nicole stayed with her sister night and day. She wanted to ensure that she was okay and watch the progress that was happening with her sister. One day, as an officer was leaving the hospital, they rode down the elevator with Nicole's husband, Christopher. When they were watching Christopher's body language, they noticed that his shoes matched the shoe print that was left at the crime scene. And when they really dived in, they noticed that his truck was very similar to the one that was seen leaving the house that night. Police bring Christopher in for questioning. They search his home and truck, but notice that even though there are similarities within the shoes, it wasn't the exact match. And even though his truck was very similar, they couldn't shake the fact that it didn't have those exhaust pipes. Again, There was a lot of similarities in this, and police never released what 
made them eye in on Christopher, what he did that made it a little awkward for him. Ten days after the murders of the Gee family, police searched the property of Christopher and Jason Harris several times, and they seized Christopher's pickup truck. On October 1st, 2009, 30-year-old Christopher Harris was arrested and charged with five counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, and several other charges related to the Gee family murders. Christopher had been living up the street from the Gee family with his ex-wife, Nicole Gee. She was also the daughter of Rick at the time of the murders. Many people were in disbelief following the arrest. They stated he didn't do it. The family's trying to hire a lawyer from Chicago because he didn't do it. Jennifer Ernest, the girlfriend of Chris's brother Jason, was telling investigators. Nicole Gee also supported Christopher. She posted to her Facebook, All of this is a mess and it's not right. Not only are my children losing five very close family members, but their daddy's being set up and taken away. This is too much. She truly believed her husband was innocent and that police were just making a mistake. She thought that police didn't have any leads and instead of letting the case go cold, they were going to pin it on her husband. It wasn't long before others were also arrested, though, in this case. So we're going to dive into something that's going to show similar why the police narrowed in on Christopher. Jason Harris, Jennifer Ernest, and Jennifer's mother, Sarah Dukin, they were charged with obstructing justice in their murder investigation of the Gee family. The following day, Jason Harris was also charged with murder and attempted murder. On October 28, 2009, the Harris brothers were charged with more than 50 counts, including murder, attempted murder, home invasion, residential robbery, and criminal sexual assault. Jennifer and Sarah were accused of providing false alibis, burning clothes, concealing a laptop computer, and lying to the police. So as the police started to narrow in, they were given alibis from Jennifer and Sarah that the boys were at home with them, they were drinking, and they were all just having a good time. But when they started to interrogate and get the boys to crack, they found that that all was a lie. Everything that was given in the alibi and the reason why the police thought, okay, this can't be them, that came out to be false. The case against the Harris family started to mount. Police were able to locate numerous articles of evidence to use against the brothers in court and have a diehard case to put them in jail for the murders. The evidence was found. The evidence found was a tube of antibiotic ointment found on Nicole Gee's table, as well as stained tennis shoes and a tire iron found near Jason's home was all collected and sent for DNA analysis. The shoes compensated from the Harris brothers matched the bloody footprints at the scene. Bloody handprints at the scene also matched Christopher Harris's hand, and a computer was also found in the home that belonged to Rick Key. So if you remember just a few minutes ago, I said that the footprint didn't match the one at the scene that Christopher was wearing. The police ended up finding those bloody shoes outside of the home. So like in their backyard trying to be hidden. And those were the ones that were matched to the case. The police did several, um, 
sweeps in Christopher's family home. And every time they went in, the one thing that got to them was the fact that they couldn't find anything that really linked him to the case. None of the shoes that he had in his home and his possession matched it. They couldn't find that exact print until they started searching the perimeter of his home. So I, I, w- I want to bring that in to make sure there's clarification there. Jason Harris told police investigators that he and Chris were out, were out drinking, smoking weed, and doing lines of coke the night of the crime. He said that they tried, and without success, to hook up with some girls that his brother knew. So, mind you, at this point, Chris and Nicole are married. They're on, they're on again. But he's trying to have sexual relations with other girls during this time because Nicole was at work. At that point, they decided to go to the Gee family home. And the reason to go, for going to the Gee home, according to Jason, was to talk and possibly hook up with Justine Constant, Nicole's stepsister. Jason later stated that they went to the home to buy weed from Rick Constant and to steal a computer. So his story was changing just a little bit. As the time passed and the boys were awaiting their murder trials, the town of Beeson had to move forward. Tabitha Gee recovered from her injuries and was placed in foster care pending a custody case between her grandmother and DCFS. So I'm not sure why Tabitha couldn't stay with her sister, Nicole, but I'm sure that there's a reason behind that. She ultimately was given to her grandmother and she was raised by her grandmother. The tiny town pulled together to cope with this tragedy and find peace once again in their community. The town constructed a playground to honor the children and entitled it the Gee Constant Memorial Playground. I think that's really sweet that they came in to do that. During the trial of Christopher, he testified that he and his brother, Jason Harris, drank smoke marijuana, and used cocaine during a long night that ended with the slains. He testified that the two went to the Gee's family home to buy more marijuana. When he walked into the home, he saw 46-year-old Rick, 39-year-old Ruth, and 11-year-old Austin Gee all badly hurt and dead. He said that he then fought Dylan, but Jason testified that He believed they went to the family home that night because his brother wanted to have sex with Ruth Gee's 16-year-old daughter, Justine Constant, Nicole's stepsister. Jason Harris testified that he stayed outside the house, but he could hear a woman screaming like a horror film and then a thud that sounded like a bowling ball hitting the floor. He said he saw his brother hit Dylan with a tire iron and that his sibling admitted he killed the rest of the family. He said that Chris stated, I messed up. I killed them all. Jason Harris initially lied to the police and helped his brother burn bloody clothes and dispose of the tire iron and other evidence. Jason was also charged with murder, and he agreed to plead guilty to lesser charges, and that with time served and good behavior, that he can be freed from prison in about six years. It was a mess. Christopher's defense team had a whole nother theory, though, of what happened that night. Christopher stated, as I just said, that he went to the Gee family home at the time of the murders, but his story was a little different from how his brother thought. 
Christopher claimed that the brothers had gone to his former in-law's home in hopes to get more marijuana. It was apparent that they would have some. Like I said, Rick was known for having some weed and being able to give it to people. Christopher claims that when they got there, Jason stayed outside and that he went in and he saw Rick Key laying face down in the hallway. He said a tire iron was laying next to him. And before I move to the next thing, the hallway that Ricky was found in was like a small hallway. So initially police stated that whoever did these crimes would have marks over their bodies because there's no way that they can attack someone and no one else like try and fight back. And that's the one thing that stood with me in this case. So the hallway that Rick was found in Like, you can't spread your arms all the way across. It was a tiny hallway. Now back. He said that after he saw that, he was startled at the scene. And then he was confronted by Dylan. Dylan had a knife and began attacking him. He said he picked the tire and iron up to defend himself. Just as Jason would claim, the fight went out into the yard for a bit before back into the house. Christopher would claim that he only killed Dylan and that Dylan had killed the others. With this, the defense team brought a ton of evidence to help back up the story that Dylan could have done this. Dylan had some major issues as it appeared. He had several incidents in his school over the last few years that caused some problems. He was getting in trouble with fighting, slashing seats on the school bus, and even was quoted saying, I can't wait until the stupid school blows up. After failing a test, the defense had a video game expert testify that Gillen played games that were violent and could have contributed to his attitude, but was forced to stop short, saying that he had the mindset and ability to commit these crimes. So he couldn't say, yes, this is this is why. In 2007, Ruth apparently told a therapist that Dylan was seen that she feared that he would hurt himself or someone else. Around the same time, Rick's mother, Jude, claimed that Rick told her if they didn't get Dylan under control, they would all wake up dead one day. Now, neither of these statements were allowed to be entered into trial, considering that they were more than two years before the murders. It was something that the defense would appeal, but the court would uphold it. However, since they could not use these statements, they used the school records and some of Dylan's medical doctors complained that he was diagnosed with ADD and had placed, been placed on prescription medication, but at the time of the murders was no longer taking it and had it in some times, trying to show that he was a little unstable. The biggest thing that Christopher had to answer to was if his story was true, then why was, like, if his story was true, And he walked in on Dylan killing the family, and then he killed Dylan defending himself. Why didn't he call the police? Christopher would simply state that he didn't want to have to explain himself and that he had taken the laptop on the chance that there was a camera for that reason. The other big question was, why did he not look for our attempt to help three-year-old Tabitha? Well, the community was obviously upset over the five murders themselves. The attack on the three-year-old who struggled to survive was even harder to comprehend, and Christopher had no answer for this. The defense had a few other things going for them, such as the fact that Christopher did not appear, appear that Christopher did not appear to have any wounds on his body after the murder, 
And that's something that the police, they did state, like, we're looking for someone that has marks or scratches. Like, this was a brutal attack. And Christopher didn't have any. It was also something that Nicole had pointed out earlier in her MySpace status. At the very least, it was common knowledge that Dylan had struggled, but the authorities would claim that all of the victims, including Lil Tabitha, had defense wounds, indicating that they had fought for their lives. In fact, the police announced initially that they were looking for a gray truck and someone who had injuries. The defense would argue that the house was very little, and just the hallway that Rick was found in was only three feet wide, and it was nearly impossible to not have any injuries after killing him let alone four other people and attacking another. One other interesting thing that helped the defense was apparently Ricky had DNA under his nail, but it didn't belong to Christopher. It belonged to Dylan. Prosecutors would point out that this is not uncommon since they lived in a home together and would attempt to argue that Dylan had no scratches on him. The prosecutor would ultimately admit that the things about Dylan's behavior that were allowed to be admitted to the trial were accurate, but attempted to dismiss them as horseplay or acts of an immature boy looking for attention. Christopher Harris was convicted on all five counts of murder and received five consecutive life terms. Chris admitted to killing Dylan Constant, but claimed he did so in self-defense after discovering the 14-year-old boy slaughtered his entire family. Chris maintains his innocence throughout the trial and sentencing, and he maintains its innocence now. He stated, I made a lot of stupid, stupid decisions that night, but I did not commit this crime, and that's all I have to say. Judge Scott, who before sentencing denied Chris's motion for a new trial, not only imposed five consecutive life sentences, but also added a total of 80 years in prison for first-degree murder, armed robbery, and home invasion. Because of the charges, this only sentence that the judge could impose is life in prison. Tabitha Gee, who was three years old at the time she was beaten and survived the attack, said through a statement that was read in court, I am seven, and it still breaks my heart, and I wish you were dead. My brothers and sister and mommy and daddy were alive. Nicole Gee stated in a letter that was read in the court that she had changed the name of their son, who was born a short time before the killings, and vowed that she would never tell Chris who the, boy, who the son's name was. During trial, Chris's own brother testified against him, describing the sickening sound as Chris plummeted his former mother-in-law and her family with a tire iron. Jason, Harris, Jason Harris's murder charges were dropped as a part of his plea agreement. He pleaded guilty to concealing of a homicide, delivery of a controlled substance, and obstruction justice. He received 20 years in prison for his role in the murders with credit for time served. In September 2013, Jennifer Ernest pled guilty to obstructing justice and was sentenced to 24 months of probation, 120 days in Logan County Jail, a $1,000 fine, and 100 hours of community service. Sarah Dugan was given 24 months of probation and a $2,500 fine for her obstructing justice charge. Now, as I went through kind of where they are now, there's not a ton of information of where Tabitha and Nicole are, and I'm going to respect that I couldn't easily find it and not go over what was found because they've already gone through enough. In 2014, Firefighters burned down the family home, 
where all of them were murdered. Ten members of the Beanson Family Fire Department set the small, white, one-story house ablaze. Rick and Ruth Gee and her three children were killed by Christopher, and this was their former son-in-law. And the family said that they, the fam, the fire chief said that the family asked for them to do this. They didn't want to see the home anymore while they were driving down the streets. So the Illinois Environmental Protection Agency signed off on the on the plan and they demolished the house. And that's all that I'm going to give of where they are now. That happened in 2014. I will say my thoughts on this case are very mixed. Ultimately, I feel like at one point this could have been Dylan. I feel like there can be things that make Christopher's story accurate especially with everything that was said. Friends and family knew that Dylan was distancing himself from his family, and he didn't really spend a lot of time with them. The whole video games and his personality changing was something known throughout their friend group. My issue with that is, why didn't Christopher help Tabitha? And does Tabitha remember anything? That's not, that's not information that I was able to find on this case, on if she remembered who attacked her, if that memory came back. I think ultimately, if Christopher's story is true, he's serving his time for not calling law enforcement and letting someone else find that that crime scene. And with all the evidence packed up against him, I honestly think Christopher is guilty. I don't believe that his brother would come in and state something completely different. His brother remembers the sound of Christopher killing his mother-in-law. So this case has a lot of twists and turns. It was never really released why the police narrowed in on Christopher. They kind of kept that to themselves. But maybe one day they will release it. Like I said, there's not much information on Nicole and Tabitha and where they are now. But I'm sure... From that time to now, that was in 2009, so about 12 years ago, there's been a lot of growing that they've had to do with Nicole one and her children and her their father being the one to kill their uncles and, and their aunts and their grandparents. And then Nicole just having her entire family wiped out, but one, I don't know if Tabitha and Nicole are in connection with each other. But I do know Tabitha is with her grandmother at this time. So that brings us to the end of our episode. As always, thank you for listening to Murder by Nature. If you enjoyed our show, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any streaming platform that you're currently on. And be sure to come back next Saturday for our new episode. Again, I also want to thank everyone for listening to our podcast. It's crazy to see how much it grows every week week after week after week. We are also on TikTok, um, doing pretty good over there, but we're on TikTok and I do release short stories every single day. So every day you'll find something that there's just not a ton of information uh, to do a podcast on, or it'll be a story that I just came across and I want to get it out right then and there. And I'll ask our listeners if they want a full episode on it. So be sure to follow us on TikTok and be able to hear those extra bonus episodes and see what we can bring. If you guys have any suggestions or any cases, 
please drop them in the comments or send us an email at murderbynaturepodcast at gmail.com. Or you can even just fill out the case suggestion form in our bio. But please let me know if you guys want to hear anything. And I am your host, Jasmine Hernandez. Don't forget to stay safe. Don't get murdered or murder people, you lovely humans.